Welcome to the Woman's Own Book Club Guest Author of the Month. The Sex Lives of African Women is a provocative title, but this book by Nana Dakwa Sekiyama is about so much more than its title suggests. But then again, so is its author. Born in London of Ghanaian parents, Nana grew up in Ghana, and amongst her areas of study are performance coaching, communications, conflict management, cultural studies, gender and development. She's a member of the Black Feminist Forum, and she's a blogger, as I say, amongst other things. Well, Nana was in Cape Town recently for the Open Book Festival, and we invited her to the Women's Library, where we asked her first to describe herself. Yeah, I feel like I'm many things. Well, first of all, I'm an African feminist. That's really how I start by identifying. Um, in terms of nationality, I come from Ghana. Ghana is also where I consider home, where I live. A writer, I'm a blogger, I'm a podcaster, I'm a communications professional. I hold many hats professionally. I run a strategic communications company called Makita Piao. I'm also co-director of a newly formed initiative called the Institute for Journalism and Social Change, which basically brings together activists, academics, emerging and um, established journalists who are interested in the kind of journalism that leads to impact in the world. Um, and I'm also director of Massey Media, which is the home for Adventures for the Bedrooms of African Women, which is a blog, a podcast, and a live festival around sex, sexualities, and pleasure. I'm also a mother of a three-and-a-half-year-old toddler called Asantua, and also a dog mom <laughs> to Romeo. So I think that's me in a nutshell. And I'm a single mum. Okay, okay. That is a huge nutshell, uh, and the single mum says it all because... If you were not single, you probably wouldn't be able to do all those other things. But <laughs> who knows? So many things to touch on. But I, I want to touch on the fact that you uh, you call Ghana home mm. and you're into journalism. Mm. And let's just talk a little bit about Ghana because mm. it's a challenging place to live for anybody. Mm. Challenging place, especially for a journalist. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say challenging, especially now for people who work on sexual rights um, because the environment has become really, really repressive. We had a number of MPs put together a private member's bill which basically seeks to ban identifying as anyone on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum. It, it seeks to ban advocacy for queer people, advocating for the rights of queer people. I mean, it's basically seeking to legitimize hate against queer people, and I think that's... Yeah, that's really difficult. And unfortunately, the bill has successfully gone through two readings in Parliament. So we're kind of in a wait-and-see situation to see what happens next. Yeah. Is there a groundswell of protest? Is it evident that people are unhappy? I feel like what has really been encouraging through this process is especially mainstream traditional women's rights organisations that I previously did not really regard as radical you know, have actually taken a stance against this bill. Um, a number of prominent academics, prominent human rights lawyers have been vocal against against the bill and spoken about how it's contradictory to our own Ghanaian constitution, which for me has been really important and I consider a win because I think especially for young feminists and young queer groups that had not felt supported by, in a sense, the older activists, I hope 
you know, that begins to like create more relationships between, in a sense, an older group of activists and a young group of activists, you know? Yeah. yeah. A big concern for young people in general, because young people want to have advocacy, they want to have choice, they want to have a future that they decide what it's going to be like. So it's not, not a healthy thing for the younger generation at all. It's ridiculous, and it's ridiculous to think that a lawmaker thinks it's okay to actually create a law that bans people from advocating for their rights. I mean, it blows the mind, um, and it's actually really scary. But then, you know, one of the things that you realize, and that's part of what the work at the Institute for Journalism and Social Change does, is that you realize that, you know, bills like this don't come out of the blue. They come about because there are, there's a, like a really, really strong force of far-right extremists who have been working globally, who have a lot of dark money, and who actually have been working with parliamentarians in different African countries to put together bills like this in their country, mainly because they feel they've, in a sense, lost the culture wars in their own country. So they're seeing Africa as almost like the last battleground for Christianity in quotes. And and this is the reason why we have bills like this ringing up in a number of African countries. She kind of answers my question. You're obviously not getting a lot of support for other, from other African countries. So it, but let's park that because it is a big, big issue. But it does contextualize the content of your book. So um, The Sex Lives of African Women, aside from the fact it, it's, it's a hell of a title, it was a hell of an undertaking, well done. Um, and I want to say it's a brave book, all the obvious things. But at the same time, it's, it must have been a very big challenge to put it together in the country where you live at this moment in time. Give us the background to the book, because you mentioned the blog, you mentioned podcast. Tell us the story of how it arrived. So, I mean, I became interested in the question of sex and sexuality, like, literally, when I turned 30, right? And I feel like it's because, like, a lot of African girls, you know, I grew up really being told not much about sex. You were kind of told, especially once you had your period, that, you know, it's really scary and really dangerous to mess around with guys without anybody giving you the breakdown of what messing around really means, you know? And then suddenly, at a certain age, you expected to get married and to have children, And so it really took me until the cusp of turning 30 to be like, hold on, (laughs) you know, what's going on here? And to feel like, you know what, I'm going to now experiment with my sexuality. I'm now going to try and figure out things for myself. And that's when I started a blog with my friend called Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women. And I think part of what the blog allowed me to do was it almost challenged me to be true to myself you know, and to have sexual experiences and I'll document those sexual experiences and share them on the blog. And I found that women really engaged with the content. They would share their thoughts, they would share their comments. People started sending their own stories to me. I'll say to them, can we publish this on the blog? They'll say yes. You know, people became regular contributors to the blog. The demand was so much that I gave complete strangers. I feel like I wouldn't do this in this day and age, but I did that then their own usernames and passwords, the blog, so they could upload their own content regularly. Many of those women I still have not met to today, but they had, like, entire, like, series. And that way we had stories from people who had different sexuality identities to mine, right? So I think the stories became more open, they became more interesting, um, and people had, like, their favorite bloggers that they could connect with and resonate with. And by doing that for a number of years, I just realized that the stories of African women when it comes to sex and sexuality is a lot more interesting and diverse than I think 
especially the outside world, realizes. I was also really frustrated by especially Western media and its portrayal of African women and asexuality. I felt the focus was on us as vectors of disease without a recognition that you could have a chronic illness and you can still live like a full and happy life. Or we were portrayed as women who were miserable under the thumbs of men. Not to say there are not elements of truth in that, but that's not the whole story. And I felt like the whole story was way more interesting, way more complicated. Um, and, and that's when I got the idea for the book. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to interview as many African women as possible from different countries on the continent and from the diaspora about the experiences of sex and sexuality and put it in a book. And that eventually became The Sex Lives of African Women. Wow. That's such a story. And again, so many avenues up which we should go or could go. And I think the thing is what you're told, not told. Mm. And the mystery of it all, you know, what woman wouldn't be interested in is something that is so heavily veiled and mm-hmm. so heavily tabooed. Mm-hmm. But let's let's start with the told, not told. Let's start with the educational thing, because um, African women is a very broad brushstroke. Mm. We're looking mm-hmm. at all of the women in Africa, mm-hmm. but we're looking at all of the African women outside of Africa. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very, very huge numbers that we're looking at. But I, I suppose this might not just be an African thing, but there is a lot of not telling. What you clearly weren't told very much at all, but in listening to the people that you've spoken to, is it obvious that there is the parents are not talking, never mind what happens at school, and is that a cultural thing? Mm-hmm. I mean, when I say cultural, I put it in inverted commas mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. whose culture are we talking about here? Mm-hmm. But what is it that p- parents will not do not talk to their children about sex? Mm. I think, first of all, parents do not talk to their children about, like, sex can be a pleasurable activity, right? And I think it may come from a place that parents think is good because they don't want children to engage in early sexual activity. But the thing that I also discovered in my conversations with women is a lot of girls get sexually abused at a really young age. And I think part of what makes it difficult for them to speak up about that is the fact that they just have the sense that sex is bad and they feel somehow complicit in their abuse and they feel they've done something wrong. So it means they don't tell the adults in their lives, which of course you know, keeps them open to the sexual abuse. And so I feel like actually if you want your child to be safe, it's important to talk to your child about sex. It's important to talk to them about their bodies. It's important that your child knows they can come and talk to you about things to do with their bodies and they know, you know, that their bodies is their own and people cannot touch them inappropriately. Um, and that's actually a way to keep your child safer, safer because, of course, there's no such thing as complete safety, mm. you know, but that's one of the ways in which to keep your child safer. And I think because parents don't want children to engage in early sex, they... They don't talk about how pleasurable sex can be, but I think they could talk about, you know, you could talk about why you may not want your child to engage in sex with other persons until they're of an age where they can, you know, make that decision. But then I think we also need to acknowledge that children and young people are sexual beings and to talk to them about ways that they can pleasure themselves and be safe. I feel like that's a more realistic conversation to have. I suppose the schism here is between traditional versus modern. It's a very old-fashioned words, if you know what I mean. But, you know, culturally traditional. 
grannies, gogos in this country would, you know, absolutely not not be talking about, or if they would, it would be in hushed whispers. I'm guessing here, mm. but you know, things that are just—it's not okay because we don't do that. Mm. Versus younger women who've travelled, who like yourself have, mm. you know, much more broadly broad thinking, who have dare I say it, perhaps been educated differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're crossing a big river here, mm. tradition versus modern. Mm. Do you see the book as a, as a bridge, or do you see there's any other way that we can bridge this mm. divide? Mm-hmm. You know, I think what's actually really interesting is the research I'm doing for my second book is also really looking at some of the ways in which Africans have traditionally passed on knowledge around sex and sexuality. And part of what I'm realizing even more is that our current conservatism around sex is actually very new. If we were to look at pre-colonial Africa, we had a way more expansive understanding of gender and sexuality, right? Um, And part of what I think colonization successfully did was to actually make us more conservative. And so if you're thinking of, you know, what is traditional, actually being conservative about sex is not really traditional what part of our traditional history. Of course, that's me speaking very, very broadly because there's a whole continent of different people. Um, But I'm learning about so many cultures and the ways in which women were, in a sense, taught and prepared for marriage, where they actually were taught literally how to have sex. And in this day and age, nobody really teaches a girl how to have sex. You're somehow expected to figure it out on your own. Yeah. Well, nobody does, but unfortunately or fortunately that we have a huge amount of television and mm. videos and TikTok and YouTube and all sorts of things that are telling young people, with or without parental guidance, mm-hmm. um, this, this can happen. And you think, whoa, you know, where's that coming from? So, so young people are getting all sorts of mixed messages from all over. So the blog was obviously hugely well-followed. It was a big demand for it. So, and then you moved into the book, and it took a long time. This book has been yes. a long time coming. It has. But there was a, an aha moment when you started to talk to women. How did, I mean, reading the stories, I think, these women must have been so relieved at last to be able to tell this story. How did you identify them? Oh, in like just a variety of ways. The very first person I interviewed for this book had DM'd me on Twitter, or what was called Twitter, (laughs) (laughs) to basically talk to me about how she felt confused about her own sexuality. Hmm. And at the time, the idea for the book had come to me, right? And what I would previously do is just sort of share my thoughts, you know, via DM to this person, which I still did. And then I said to her... Like, during the DM exchange, I thought, oh, I could interview her for my books. I said to her, I'm working on a book about the sex lives of African women. Can I interview you? And so we met. She came to my house. You know, the first night, all we did was have a bottle of wine and just chat. We never really got to the topic of the interview. And the second time she came around, we had a conversation, and then we had the third conversation. So that was my very first interview for the book, right? Um, In my previous job, um, working for the African Women's Development Fund, I used to travel widely across the the continent. So any time I went to a new country, I found someone to interview. That was my goal, because I was trying to interview as many women from different countries. And even when I went to a country where, like, I knew no one, so, for instance, there was a time I went to Sao Tome, which is a small island off the coast of West Africa. I mentioned that because I feel like a lot of people don't really know where Sao Tome is. Um, And it's a Portuguese-speaking country, right? The tour guide was really nice and friendly, and I said to him, do you know any Sao Tomean woman who would be willing to speak to me about my book? 
And he was like, oh, yes, my friend. And he served as a translator. And so that's how I was able to interview someone from, uh, from Sao Tome. And so that was always my goal. It was just like everywhere I went, I'd find somebody, you know. Maybe I'm chatting to somebody. They seem to me like they're interested. And I'm like, I'm working on this book. Can I interview you? And invariably, people would say yes. Mm. Gosh, that's such a story. And I come back sitting at your place with a bottle of wine thinking, okay, you know, this is how these conversations are, uh, are possible because mm. otherwise everybody's a little bit sort of uptight about the whole thing, you know, <laughs> yeah, relaxed. But it is a big thing to share this sort of yes, information. And I'm thinking of all the hats that you, many hats that mm. you wear amongst them, is somewhere sitting in there as a counsellor's hat, a psychologist's mm. hat, mm-hmm. because you have to know, A, how to say to somebody, so tell me about your sex life, yes. um, but then how to sort of gentle it out of them. Yes. That must have been quite a, a learned skill. Yeah. I think this is where having been a feminist and feminist spaces was really helpful somehow, you know, um, and also having been a student of gender, literally. So understanding the trauma that many women have lived through, understanding it's important to be, give people space to speak and to share, understanding how healing conversations can be, understanding how important it is not to re-traumatize people. So I feel like these are skills I have gained through years of activism, through years of being in like different like movement spaces. And so I did feel able to, in a sense, facilitate that sharing and to hold space and to hear people, even though I'm not a professional. And there are many people who, for instance, told me about the experiences of sexual abuse and said, this is the first time I've ever spoken mm. about this. Or at the end of the conversation, people will say, wow, I had no idea I was going to tell you all of that, you know? So, yeah, I feel it's a learned space through just being an activist. Yes, and, yeah. and it would be different for each and every woman that you spoke exactly. to. Abuse is huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's sort of, it's coloured, if you like, so many of the stories. Mm-hmm. It's tainted them, it's stained them, mm-hmm. and, and quite badly. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why parents do don't tell because there's all that sort of, um, you know, somebody else in the household who might Mm. be the abuser. So it's very, very complicated, very, very layered. So having identified the women who were prepared to talk, there was no ways that you could say to them, so what are you? Um, Are you bisexual? Are you homosexual? Are you lesbian? Oh, that was my first question. Oh, okay. (laughs) That was my first question. So you dived right in. Yeah, I I dived right in. That was Mm. invariably my opening question was, how do you identify in terms Mm. of your gender and sexuality? And so I start this book with saying, like, there's a sort of a few words that says how the person identified. And people identified in different ways. Some people identified as a woman, love, and woman. Some people identified as pansexual. Some people identified as bicurious. Some people said I'm um, heterosexual. And so how everybody identified was basically how I described them in the book. Yeah. It's interesting that... I mean, depending on what age you are, and some of them are much older and some of them are Mm. quite young, that they've thought it through because it's not everybody who would say to themselves, well, what, or maybe they do, you know, what am I? How do I? And there's a whole vocabulary, the whole lexicon of words, some of which Mm -hmm. you've just said. Mm -hmm. So did you find that the women had thought it through or was talking to you part of the thinking through process? Mm. Some people had thought it through and some people were like, oh, I don't know, I'm I'm just a woman. You know, oh, oh, yeah, I've heard of all of these terms, but I don't know. I don't really, you know, understand that. I guess I'm a woman and I'm heterosexual, you know. Or some people be like, well, I think I'm heterosexual because I've only been with, uh, with men, but I'm curious about being with 
a woman, but I identify as heterosexual. So I'll still describe them as heterosexual. But somebody else in that same scenario would say, I'm bi-curious. You know, so there's the element of choice, but also of understanding terminology and how people choose to identify. And I think it's different things for different people, sometimes depending on who they are politically. You know, so the people who I guess are, like, more activists and in a particular world, you know, may have may have language that I guess would be read as more political. I mean, in terms of identity, I use a term which I don't think is at all like current, but it's a it's a term I am wedded to because when I started understanding that term, it was very political. So I identify as a bisexual woman, and I'm, I feel like that's so like uh, in this day and age, you know. But like for me, that's still a term that feels like special. You know, because um, it came to me when I was, like, in my early 20s. And, yeah, for me, that's still radical, even though it's not radical in this no, day and age yeah. at all. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you might mature into something else. Oh, well, yeah. I, I like it, so I'm sticking with it, because okay. I feel like people should also make the choice to identify how they want to identify. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. And your book will certainly help them do that. Yes. Because there's some stories that are not linear. There, there mm-hmm. isn't sort of one direction. Oh, she's this and mm-hmm. she's going there. Yes. She's going all over the place. Uh, to use your word experiment, you know, yes. tr- find out for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, do you use the word political? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're thinking that the book is about so much more than sex lives. It's, it's to do with politics. It's to do with um, traditional versus contemporary, cultural, intergenerational, uh, patriarchy, abuse, confusion, mythology, monogamy, mm-hmm. polyamory, identity, pregnancy, abortion, I mean, race, all so many different things. And, you know, the point about sex, as we know, is for procreation. Mm-hmm. And that got lost in the lost in translation long ago. <laughs> you know. But actually, it doesn't come up a lot in the, in the stories mm-hmm. either. They don't talk mm-hmm. a lot about... Oh, you know, I wanted to have a baby. Mm-hmm. It w- that was not the issue at all. Mm-hmm. Um, did you? Were you surprised by that? It's so funny because, to be honest, until you mentioned it right now, I just realized that pregnancy was not a big thing at all. It yeah. had not occurred to me, frankly. And I feel like for me personally, that was also one of my big revelations as I grew up, right? Because when I was young, I kind of equated having sex with falling pregnant, and it was a negative association. And like it took me until my 30s to realize that, oh, well, like somehow, you know, sex doesn't necessarily result in pregnancy. And actually, at a certain age, women might be trying to fall pregnant and will be having lots of sex and would not fall pregnant. And so for me, that's a more interesting thing to write about, you know. And I do think we need to de-link sex from pregnancy. And I actually hadn't realized it until right now. But, yeah, that connection is not really very strong in the book. And to me... I mean, that reflects the reality. I think sex is about many, many things. It's about the ways in which the state tries to control who we are. It's, sex is also about finding freedom. Sex is also about healing. Sex is about learning. Sex is about our relationships to power. It's about money. It's about a lack of money. I feel like pregnancy is just one of the things that sex yeah. could be about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's yeah. also about relationships in general. Yes. 
Um, you must forgive the, all the noises off. We have many, many children running around Artscape at the moment, which is lovely, yeah. um, talking of pregnancy. Yeah. Uh, th- these are the results. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things I didn't mention is, is, mm. is religion. Mm. Um, and as much as politics can be a compounding factor, religion is a rock in the river. It's mm-hmm. an absolute, it's a damn war, isn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of women listening to their stories, they are so confused um, by what they should, thou shalt and shalt not mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. Religion, was it a big one? It was a huge one because for a lot of people, what they were told or not told about sex was because of religion, right? Because somehow it was seen as immoral to have sex, to even be informed about sex, to, you know, have condoms, you know, um, was seen as somehow terrible because of religion. Um, and this is just because of what people have been told about religion. And I like that description of religion being like a dam or rock in the river um, because it's, for a lot of people, part of what makes it difficult for them to experience their sexuality, even when they are now of an age and in the status where they are allowed to have sex. Um, there was this mental block because of, of religion and how they were raised and what they were told. And abuse, we have to talk about abuse because it has just been so damaging and, uh, you know, very often girls are abused before they even know what sex is about, mm-hmm. before they know anything at all, mm-hmm. which psychologically can affect them unconsciously. You know, uh, you know, you might have been abused at the age of three or four and not mm-hmm. remember it, but mm-hmm. it's going to impact your life. Yes. And you clearly found a lot of that. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, I think for me that was somehow the shocking thing in the book and and the shocking thing for my conversations with women. I feel like the things that you may know statistically but when you actually experience it, it has a different impact on you. I hadn't expected so many women to have experienced child sexual abuse. And the other thing I also realized was there was a question I was asking people that was triggering people to tell me about the experiences of child sexual abuse. And frankly, it got to a time when I didn't really want to hear you know, um, and so I stopped asking that particular question that I knew got people to open up, and and that was a choice that I made because I felt like, ooh, this is a lot, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot. I would imagine you might have needed some debriefing yourself, not to mention being interviewed yourself. Mm-hmm. But before we get onto your um, your own interview, which I thought was a wonderful, brave thing to do, the book is in three parts. Stories of self-discovery, stories of freedom, and stories of healing. Such a significant collection. What made you... Was it quite difficult to to find those parts? So once I'd done about 20 interviews, I did this really dorky thing of like doing a spreadsheet with everybody's name and age and country. And I started to write down the words that were coming to me whenever I thought of that person's story. And then I could see some trends. It felt to me like there were a lot of women who were on a journey of self-discovery, were questioning the things they had been told growing up and were trying to figure out new ways to be, even if they didn't know what those new ways to be would be. It also felt to me like there were a lot of women who had experiences they needed to heal from, or were actively engaged in some sort of healing practice. And then it felt to me like there were a couple of women who were like unicorns, you know, who had figured it out and were like living their best sex lives. And I felt like, oh, that's that's the person I want to be when I grow up, you know. And that's how those particular themes came to me. And of course, you know, there are many stories that in a sense shift between themes. Um, so 
I feel like some of the choices I made in, in terms of where to place stories were a bit arbitrary, and there are actually two versions of the book. You know, there's the book for Africa <laughs> and the UK, and then there's a book for North America, and some of the stories are in different sections in the North American edition. How yeah, perfectly interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, were you guided by your publishers on that, or did you just have a gut feel that there would be more appropriateness? No, I think you know the first edition, the edition we have here in South Africa, is the one that I first worked on. You know, and then I made the choices that I did, and then the North American edition sold like afterwards, like a year afterwards. And, you know, I think the thing about what's interesting about writing is obviously also the process where other people then start to interact with the book, like your editor, you know, and having conversations with my editor about, why is this story here? Don't you think it could be here? Yeah, it could be here, but I, didn't, I put it here. You know, and then almost like a process of renegotiation and moving stories yes, around. Yes, yeah. yes. There are no hard and fast rules, exactly. no parameters at all yes. um, in the content. And I like that fluidity, you know, because I, I really think life is about being fluid and... Yeah, I like the fact that in a version of this book, a particular story may be in self-discovery, and in another version of the book, it's in freedom. Mm. Yeah, and healing. Yeah, and healing. Yeah. Um, yes, fluidity is also a very good word, is it not? Uh, we haven't touched on alcohol, which also r runs like a little bit of a river through mm. the book. But I mean, you know, that's one of those things. It almost feels like, I mean, I'm not sure if you were thinking about this certainly when you were talking to the women, but when you were writing it and compiling it and editing it down, you must have thought, this is a manual. I'm thinking it should be in every teenage library or not. What, what are your feelings on its educational aspect? Yeah, part of what has been really great is when a couple of university professors have, professors have gotten in touch with me and said, I'm pleased with this on my curriculum. Can you come and teach to my students? So there are a couple of universities which have put this on their curriculum, and that's been amazing. Um, I would love for it to also reach a younger audience. You know, I have a number of women who bought the book who tell me things like, I'm going to pass this on to my daughter. You know, I don't know at what age they plan to pass it on to their daughter because they always speak about it as something that will happen in the future. But that also warms my heart. And how was it being interviewed yourself? I mean, I think at some point you thought, well, I can't, be, I can't authentically be putting this book together unless I'm completely honest and open. Did somebody interview you or did you interview yourself? How did it work? I had to ask my friend to interview me because, yes, you're absolutely right. You know, at some point in time I thought, okay, you can't get everybody to, you know, share their deeper secrets with you and then leave yourself out of the book. I feel like definitely it was part of my feminist practice to put myself in the, in the book as well. And when I started to write, I was struggling, you know, and I was like, why am I struggling? And then it occurred to me, like, you should do what you've done with everybody. Like, you need to interview yourself. But, of course, it's hard to interview yourself. So I reached out to a close friend of mine who's also a writer, and I said, can you interview me for my book? So she interviewed me. We recorded the conversation, and then that was then, like in a sense, the source material for writing my story. And it was really interesting because if I had written a story of my own volition without being interviewed, I don't think I would have started the story the way I did by actually talking about my own experiences mm. of being sexually abused as a child. You know, I feel like I would have tried to tell a more empowering story. Yeah, and I was surprised at the story that came out, but I also wanted to be true to the process. And I think it comes back to that fluidity, you know, that we spoke about. 
you know, what's the story that comes out when you really start to think about your own sexual experiences? And I think yours is in the healing section. It is in yes. the healing section. I want it to be in the freedom section. <laughs> yes, true. It depends really what's coming out, you know, at that particular point in your life when you are sitting back and thinking about the experiences you've had yeah. to date. Yeah. Two-part question here as we come to a close. The sex lives of African women... The sex lives of African men, uh, I'm not sure if, you have, if it's been suggested, if you've had male readers, if, what, is it the first thing that people say and you roll your eyes? What's your feeling on that? Yes, a number of people have said to me, including men, why don't you do the sex lives of African men? And I'm like, why don't you do the sex lives of African men? You know, um, so I'm happy for any person who identifies as a man to write that book. I will happily share my tips, my suggestions, even read the manuscript and give them feedback. But I don't think it's my role to write the six lives of African men. And I'm also not very interested, you know. <laughs> yes, it does require a certain amount of passion, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. So that's, yeah. that's not my passion, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, your passion, you have many passions, much passion, many passions. But also you mentioned that there's another book. Yes, yes. I'm currently researching my next book. It's super exciting. Also nerve-wracking, you know, um, and also much harder to do now that I have a daughter. My writing time used to be 5 a.m. in the morning. My daughter, who's three and a half, insists on crawling into my bed in the middle of the night. So that's the best negotiation I've been able to make with her. You know, she's like, Mom, I'm going to sleep for five minutes and come to your room. And I'm like, okay. And five minutes can mean she'll sleep for four hours in her bed. It can mean six hours, seven hours. But at some point in time, she's going to come into my room. And she's a very light sleeper, so I can't sort of wake up and write. So when she's in my room, I kind of have to sleep, so she has to sleep too. Um, so that's part of what's challenging with the next book. But I'm really enjoying the process. I think, of, I think part of what I'm discovering is an important part of my process is intervening, speaking to people, and documenting those stories that really usually do not get told. Um, and that's something I really enjoy and feel very passionate about. So, so the next book will be m more? It's, it's, it's about sex and sexuality, but it's not the same type of book where it's told from the individual perspectives of people. Well, I'm still working on it, so I think the process is still like coming together. But I'm thinking of it as um, it's obviously a nonfiction book. It's narrative, it's informed by conversations with people, by research, by my own experiences as well. Yeah. Very lastly, <laughs> I'm coming back to your little daughter who is, a, who's a, she's obviously, um, she's a sleeping pill because while she's with you, you can't be doing anything else, not <laughs> yes. writing, not having sex, not, not, not yes. doing anything. What sort of world would you like for her? Mm. What do you plan to tell her? Mm. I mean, I already tell her a lot, right? Um, She's, like, in the bathroom when I'm in the bathroom. Um, and I recently had my period, and she was, like... She likes to, like, look in the toilet when you do anything. And she's, like, what's that? You know, and I'm, like, it's my period. And she's, like, it's ill. And I'm, like, it's not ill. It's, you know, something that is likely to happen to any girl when she grows up. So when you grow up, you will get your period. And, like, she's three and a half, and I'm already telling her this, right? So I remember the last time I was peeing, she was, like, is it your period thing again? And I was like, no. Um, and so for me, I just plan to be open and honest and frank with her about her body, about my body, about our bodies, so that, in a sense, this becomes like a normal part of her upbringing. And, and I hope that I'll be able to have the kind of relationship with her 
where she's able to come to me with any questions and and know that you know our bodies are just bodies that help us move through the world and it's normal and nothing is ill (laughs) (laughs) and won't it be interesting to see what sort of book she writes that would be amazing i mean she's a big 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 reader i started reading to her when she was two months old and she she loves to read and you know she's really creative and loves to sing and draw and i really want to like encourage her and just pursue a creative life whatever she chooses to do because i feel like you can have creativity in any part in, in every part of your life no matter what kind of like profession or what you, you plan to do to like make a living well she's going to be a very lucky little girl lovely nana thank you Nana Dakwa Sekchiyama, thank you very much. So if anybody would like to get hold of you, find out a little bit more about you, is your blog ongoing? And the book, The Sex Lives of African Women, is published by... So The Sex Lives of African Women is published by Dialogue Books in the UK and by Astra House in North America, um, distributed in Africa through a whole range of people here in South Africa through Jonathan Ball. Um, the blog is ongoing. It's Adventures From... Dot com. The full name of the blog is Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women. We also have a podcast. Season 2 is actually coming out soon, so I encourage people to check out our podcast, also called Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women, wherever you get your podcast, I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also have a Twitter handle for the book called Sex Lives Africa. I also have an Instagram handle for the book called The Sex Lives of African Women. Um, I'm also very active personally, on social media so people can just you know find me wherever wherever they are so you're out there out I'm in the out there <laughs> out in the digital world yes no no thank in you so much in reality at home but you know out in the digital world indeed, <laughs> indeed. it's been lovely to have you here at Woman's Own thank you so much thank you for this beautiful space it's so important and thank you for the work that you do you know creating a space for women to hear stories and share their stories we appreciate you mm-hmm.